You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Everybody and welcome back to Ask Concussion Doc. We've been off for the summer and it is now September 22nd, 2021 and ready to just open up a new season of the Ask Concussion Doc show. Um, this episode today is talking about getting concussion ready. So with sports finally starting up for the most part across the board, after a long shutdown with COVID, most sports organizations and most parents and everyone's concern is going to be on COVID, ensuring COVID safety and vaccination status and testing and, and all these other things. So I think that a lot of people's attention is going to be focused on the COVID thing. But I also think that this is likely to be a huge year for concussions. There is a ton of evidence out there that demonstrates that most concussions tend to happen in the preseason or in the first part of a sports season. This is usually when athletes are deconditioned, out of shape, not used to the pace of a game, uh, and not used to all the things that are moving around, right? Peripheral vision has a lot to do with concussion preparedness and what we'll see as I go through this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about how vision can play a role in this. But when you're not used to all of this movement, not used to taking hits, not used to the pace of the game, that tends to be when concussions happen. Now, usually this is only after a few months of being off, right? You have an off season and then you get back into your sport and then you know, you have even that couple months makes a difference. Now you're talking about a situation in which athletes have been off for potentially 18 months. And in some cases, maybe even longer. So I think that this year we are going to see a huge, huge onslaught of concussions. And I think it's prudent that not only do we focus on COVID policies for sports and youth, youth sports and activities, but I think we should also make sure that we don't forget about concussion injuries. And so I'm going to talk about a bunch of different topics today. Today, we are going to cover concussion prevention. So we're going to look at primary, secondary and tertiary concussion prevention, things like protective equipment, mouth guards, helmets, other protective gear, things you may have heard of like the cue collar or some of these soccer headgear devices for heading the ball. Uh, we're going to talk about different training aspects like doing uh, training for your neck and um, uh, vision training is, is, is another one that I mentioned. Education for coaches and trainers, and does that make a difference? Will that actually prevent concussions from happening? Does it improve our ability to recognize concussion injuries? We're going to talk about baseline testing. Should I be doing it? What's the best way to do it? Um, how, how can I get one done? What, what types of things should I be looking for? And then we'll talk about just things at a general level for schools and sports clubs in terms of concussion policies, things that you should include within those policies mostly around um, recognition, reporting, and return to sport guidelines. And then we're going to talk a little bit about reporting and data collection. And so I have some ways that you can do that, some new technologies that we've developed with Complete Concussion Management to help 
that process along better. My name is Dr. Cameron Marshall, AKA Concussion Doc. I'm coming at you from a new office. For those of you watching me on YouTube, uh, will probably recognize or not recognize the facility that I'm in. We've uh, we moved over the summer, so I have this nice fancy office and I've got it all soundproofed. So hopefully the sound quality is uh, top notch for you. So first off, let's talk about prevention. So like I said, there are three types of prevention. There's primary prevention, which is trying to prevent the injury from ever happening in the first place. There's secondary prevention, which is trying to increase and improve early detection to make sure that we're not uh, allowing somebody to get hit again and cause a secondary injury. Um, and also preventing the, the recurring injuries or the subsequent injury that may happen afterwards. Then you have tertiary prevention, which is trying to reduce the symptom burdens and improve the outcomes after the injury has already occurred. So this is trying to prevent the long-term outcomes that people may face. So I'm going to talk about all these different forms of prevention. We're going to go from primary, secondary, and tertiary um, as a way of kind of highlighting some of the evidence around this. So I'm first going to talk about things like protective equipment and whether or not as a parent, as a athlete, as a sports organization or a school, if you should be looking to implement some of these things as part of your concussion policy. Um, and I think it'll just help you to make some better decisions and do things in an evidence-based way, which is what we like to promote. So let's talk about mouth guards. So do mouth guards prevent concussion injuries? Do mouth guards reduce the severity of concussion injuries, right? Are mouth guards helpful when it comes to concussion injuries? Well, the evidence is somewhat mixed. Most previous evidence, and I mean previous as before the past couple of years, demonstrated that mouth guards really had no uh, significant benefit when it came to concussions. They weren't really helpful in preventing the injuries and they didn't really reduce the severity of those injuries. Um, a recent study from Chisholm and colleagues at the University of Calgary um, put a little kink in that and they did a uh, nested case control study that was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Uh, I believe it was published in 2020. Um, and they found that the use of off-the-shelf mouth guards, so just kind of the boil and bite standard off-the-shelf mouth guards that you can get at any you know sporting goods store, reduced the likelihood or the odds of concussion by 69% in those that were wearing them. This was a significant finding. Interestingly, they also looked at dental fitted mouth guards and they found that dental fitted mouth guards reduced this, the chance of concussion by 49%, but this was actually a non-significant finding. So here's the results from this study. Among cases, 75% were wearing a mouth guard at the time of injury, while 83% of controls were wearing a mouth guard at the time of injury. Off-the-shelf mouth guards were associated with a 69% lower odds of suffering from a concussion and dental fitted mouth guards were associated with a non-significant 49% lower odds of concussion. Mouth guard use was associated with lower odds of concussion. Players should be required to wear mouth guards in youth ice hockey. Now, other studies have found that this is actually not the case. Um, and so 
It's important to consider the use of mouth guards to prevent dental injuries. There may be some outcome with concussion, but I wouldn't necessarily say that this is ironclad that can, mouth guards prevent concussion injury. There was a meta-analysis, which is a collection of a whole bunch of studies that was published in the Journal of Sports Medicine in 2019, and their results found that it reduced the risk of uh, orofacial injuries and dental injuries. Uh, the influence on concussion was modest. So very limited amount of information there to say that mouth guards definitively protect against concussion. But it's something that is helpful to wear to prevent other injuries. And there could be a small effect when it comes to concussion injuries. So let's talk about helmets. First, I'm going to talk about hard-shelled helmets. So in sports like hockey and football and cycling and skiing, these types of hard-shelled helmets are not designed to prevent concussion injuries. What they're designed to do is prevent skull fractures. So there is some evidence to show that helmets can reduce brain injury severity in more severe brain injuries and also uh, reduce skull fractures, but they don't show that strong of evidence for reducing concussion risk. The reason, if you think about it, if, if you think about a hard-shelled helmet on the outside of the head, when something hits that helmet, the helmet's designed to dissipate that force. So the force that hits the skull is covering a wider surface area, which reduces the likelihood that the skull will fracture underneath. Now, it will also reduce head acceleration to some degree, but not enough to make a huge impact in terms of the brain moving inside of the skull. So it doesn't really limit concussions or doesn't really reduce the risk for concussions, but they do reduce the chance of more serious injuries to the skull. And so again, helmets should be worn in sports where uh, they're already being worn and sports where they don't necessarily uh, increase the risk to other players. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend that people start wearing helmets to play soccer or rugby just because of the nature of the sport um, doesn't necessarily allow for that. Now getting into soft-shelled helmets, so we've seen these soccer headbands and rugby headgear uh, and people suggesting that all players be wearing scrum, scrum caps as a way to reduce concussion risk. Well, the evidence demonstrates that these do nothing to prevent concussions. Nothing. Zero. Okay? So far the evidence shows that um, uh, in large-scale studies, and here's, here's one, a recent one that was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine found this exact same thing once again. So there's been a number of studies in this. Zero effect on concussion risk. So here's this, here's this study from Timothy McGuine. 130 participants sustained a sports-related concussion. The incidence of sports-related concussion was not different between the headgear and no headgear group for males and females. Days lost from concussion was also not different between the headgear and no headgear group. Conclusion, soccer headgear did not reduce the incidence or severity of sports-related concussion in high school soccer players. Now, the big issue here is that concussion is from the brain moving inside the skull. So you can wrap whatever you want around the outside of the skull, it's not gonna make a difference. So to somebody who's considering setting up a policy for a soccer association or a rugby association and part of your concussion strategy is to have everyone wear these soccer headbands, 
it's going to get you nowhere. It's going to be basically a waste of money because it does not do anything as far as what the evidence shows does not do anything to reduce the likelihood or the chances of concussion injuries. So you can throw those out. Next up is the Q collar. Now, I'm not sure how many people are familiar with this, but I do get a lot of questions on it. The Q collar is what's called a jugular compression device. So internal jugular compression. So what it does is it wraps around the neck. It's like a, almost like a horseshoe shape that comes around the back and wraps around the neck like this. And it's tight on the neck. And you may have seen football players wearing them. You may have seen soccer players wearing them. And the idea is that it puts pressure on the jugular vein. Because like I said, concussion is from the brain moving inside of the skull. So because we can't put something on the outside of the head and prevent the brain from moving inside, the idea here is that if we compress the jugular vein, we increase the pressure inside the skull. We have more cerebral spinal fluid, we have reduced venous return, so we have more blood that pools inside of the brain, and we create a swelling of the brain so that in the event that there is an impact, then the brain can't move as much because it's, it's kind of swollen and there's more fluid in there to protect it. So that's the theory. They've done this, they've, they've, they've originally studied this in mice and they showed some pretty strong benefits. Now they put it into humans. Now, most of the studies on this don't actually look at concussion. And so if you look at the claims that are made by the manufacturers of this product, you'll see they say things like, it protects the structural integrity of the brain. Now, most people looking at that, because it's clever marketing, they're gonna think that's concussion. But really, it's not. And there's only been one study that we found so far that looks at the actual uh, protective effect of these looking at concussion, and that was recently published in 2021 in the Journal of Neurotrauma. And the primary author was Yuan. And basically they found there was absolutely no difference. A total of 488 high school football and soccer athletes were prospectively enrolled and assigned to the non-caller group or the caller group. The outcomes of the study were the preseason to postseason neuroimaging, behavioral and cognitive alterations. 46 participants were diagnosed with concussion during the season. 24 in the no-collar group and 22 in the collar group. The numbers are the exact same. There's no difference in terms of its ability to prevent concussion injuries. So Q-collar does nothing to prevent concussion. At least we don't have any evidence to support it. But what they'll say is it protects the structural integrity of the brain, which that means nothing because what they're talking about is functional imaging studies that have been done preseason to postseason. We see changes in these for all sorts of reasons and we have no idea why, but yet they'll try to say that this is because of subconcussive impacts or some other thing, but we don't actually have strong evidence to support that. It's purely theoretical. So the evidence on this is basically um, nil experimental at this point. Um, again, I wouldn't bother with it. So the summary on protective gear, if you are a policy developer or you are a concerned parent, Soccer headbands aren't going to do anything for you. Mouth guards and helmets are not likely to prevent concussion to any significant degree, but you should still wear them because they can prevent other injuries. So they are important. Cue collars, I wouldn't bother on that either. Um, and so basically protective gear, 
doesn't really do anything in terms of preventing concussion. So you can try to find the fanciest helmet in the world, and it's not necessarily going to make a difference when it comes to concussion prevention, unfortunately. One thing that may make a difference, there is some evidence to show that helmet fit may matter. So if you are going to get a helmet, make sure that it is the right fit and it fits nice and snug on the head and you don't want too much movement with it. So that's one thing that could be important. Okay, let's talk about training. Prior to the season, some people have been told that doing a neck strengthening program will help reduce their chances of getting a concussion. Is there any truth to this? Well, the evidence again on this topic is extremely mixed, but most evidence supports or um, does not support, I should say, the uh, reduction of concussion risk for those that have strong necks versus those that have weak necks. In studies head-to-head -head comparing isometric neck strength of those that have the strongest necks versus those that have the weakest necks shows that they get the exact same amount of concussions and they show when it looks at head impact exposures, those with the strongest necks are getting just as many high magnitude impacts as those with the weakest necks. So the whole premise here, the whole idea behind this is that because concussion is caused from head acceleration, having a very stiff neck, right, basically doesn't allow the head to move as much. So if my neck was like a rigid body and there was no motion in my neck whatsoever and you hit me in the head, I would have no acceleration because in order for my head to accelerate, my whole body would have to move. Well, that's a big moment arm, right? That's a big moment arm. So that reduces the amount of acceleration that happens in my head. So what they have found is that neck stiffness is associated with a reduced uh, reduced head acceleration. The problem is that neck strength is not the same thing as neck stiffness because in order to have neck stiffness, you have to have neck strength, but you also have to be under active contraction. I can have a super strong neck, but necks are also very mobile. So unless I am aware that the hit is coming and I've stiffened my neck up in preparation for it, then I'm not, my, my strong neck is not going to matter much at all. Most concussions happen when the person is unaware that they're about to get hit. It's the hockey player looking back for a pass cutting through the middle of the ice. It's the football player reaching over their shoulder to catch a pass, right? It's they're not aware that they're about to get hit. And so they don't have their neck under active contraction. So it doesn't matter how strong their neck is because it doesn't make it stiff. Neck stiffness can reduce head acceleration. Neck strength doesn't seem to do anything and it may may be a more of a fact of game awareness than neck strength which brings me to the next point which is vision training there was some preliminary evidence a few years ago and there hasn't been much building on this but there was some preliminary evidence that doing a pre-season training program using vision therapy using one of those light boards. Uh, I think it was the DynaVision light board. So they would basically stand athletes in front of this board that had a bunch of lights on it. You stand really, really close to it and you have to tap lights. So a light will turn on, you have to tap it. At the same time, there's cognitive tasks happening. So your peripheral or your, your focal vision has to stay focused on the, on the task at hand. 
and then lights are turning on, you have to turn them off. So this training program works on establishing your peripheral vision and having allowing you to have a broader kind of you know, field of vision. And they found that those that did the vision training program preseason, this was a, a team of uh, university level football players, collegiate football players, those that did the vision training were far less likely to get concussed during the season that those, than those that didn't. And so that is something that may have some merit is doing a preseason vision training program. All right. And that may just have to do with the game awareness. Now, if you were to pair neck strengthening with game awareness, because let's say a hit is about to happen and you're aware of it. If you have enough time to contract your neck, then neck strength may help. But if you don't have enough time to contract your neck, it's not going to make any difference. So vision training, game awareness, right? That's probably why most concussions happen in the preseason as well. People are not ready uh, to be hit. They're not used to the game speed. They don't know the hits coming and boom, there, there you go. So if you were to combine all of this stuff, you may have a more beneficial effect. I see some questions and I will, I will answer those um, as we go. So I'm also, for those listening on the podcast, I'm live on Instagram right now as well. Uh, next up is activity or rule modifications. So it seems that the best way to prevent concussions from happening and really the only meaningful way of preventing concussions from happening is basically reducing the chance for contact. So in minor hockey in Canada for the past few years, we actually eliminated body contact in some of the younger age groups. And what we found is a massive reduction in concussions. Now we found slight upticks in concussions in older age groups once they got into contact, but we found such a massive reduction in lower age groups. And it seems that preventing concussions at an early age is the most important thing. So the whole idea behind in the US, there's a big push to make uh, tackle football, you know, kind of outlawed until after the age of 14. I think there's some merit there. I think there's some strong reason why you'd want to do that. Younger brains tend to get the worst of it. They tend to be most likely to have some of the long-term, you know, cognitive effects that you see from concussion injuries. And, um, and they're more at risk for, for getting concussions in the first place. And so I think it's important to reduce their chance of getting them. And the best way to do this is not with better helmets. It's not with better mouth guards. It seems to be from limiting their contact. A study done in the British Journal of Sports Medicine found that removing body contact in hockey was found to reduce the risk of concussion by as much as 70%. Full contact scrimmaging in football and other full contact drills should also be limited in terms of how much time is spent on them during practices. A study from Breton Askin found that reducing full field scrimmage drills in football by 15 minutes each practice, if you were just to cut out 15 minutes of the full scrimmage drills that are usually done towards the end of practice when people are fatigued, if you were to cut out 15 minutes of that, you would reduce the, the number of, of head impacts that players got by 1,000 over a four-year college career. That means every single player, just by reducing scrimmaging at the end of practice, full contact scrimmaging, 11 on 11, if you were to reduce that by 15 minutes after each practice, you would reduce head impacts by for each player by 1,000 over a four-year period. 
Okay, so it seems that the best way for primary prevention is not equipment, but it is limiting contact and especially in younger age groups and also limiting contact drills in practice and preventing contact from happening um, within the game. Okay. All right. Now we're on to secondary and tertiary prevention. So again, just kind of reiterating this on primary prevention, right? A lot of people try to set their policies of just going, well, you know, concussions are getting out of hand. Let's not change any of the rules of our game. Let's just, you know, find better helmets. Let's find better mouth guards. Let's make every player wear these, you know, soccer headbands and that'll reduce concussions. That stuff won't do anything. Okay. In order to actually reduce concussions, if that's your goal, you have to actually make changes in how, you know, the game is played. And if you don't want to do that, then you're up to secondary and tertiary prevention. So now it's up to proper management when the injuries happen. And I think this is the bread and butter. This is the most important thing that a sports organization, that a parent, that an athlete, that anybody involved in sport can do is not necessarily trying to get the best equipment because that's not going to do anything. The best thing you can do is ensure that proper management strategies are in place so that when a concussion happens, everything is done in the right way. As I have found in the literature and as most people that are in this space have realized that it's not necessarily concussions that are the big problem. It's not concussions that are the big problem. Really what it is, is um, the, the number, it's not the number of concussions, but it's improper management of those concussions. And it's having too many concussions in a short period of time. In other words, it's not the number of concussions you get, but it's how close together they were. And that all comes down to having proper management of these injuries. So again, we shouldn't be fearful of the concussion itself. We should be fearful of the secondary concussion. And this comes down to the secondary and tertiary prevention arm. So this is the most important thing you can do as a sports organization, parent, athlete, is to ensure that you have the best management strategies in place to make sure that athletes are not returning to sport too soon. So putting all your eggs in the prevention basket, primary prevention basket is not going to be helpful for you. You need to be able to recognize concussions. You need to be able to uh, report them properly, ensure that they have proper return to sport protocols and get them back in the right way. So let's talk about education. Can we train coaches and athletes to recognize concussion injuries better? Can we educate them to report injuries when they happen? Can we educate coaches, coaches to better recognize concussions? And will that help us to better detect concussion injuries? The evidence, evidence on this is mixed as well. The interesting thing here is that if we increase the education for athletes, if we increase the education for coaches, what we find is that on standard testing, the athletes tend to know more about concussions, the coaches tend to know more about concussions, but it doesn't actually increase reporting behaviors. And it also doesn't increase the intention to report. So if you're to educate an athlete on here's concussion, here's the risks, here's the signs and symptoms, are you likely to report a concussion if one happens to you? It doesn't change anything. And what this comes down to is something called the culture of sport. This is the tough guy mentality, right, of a athlete, let's say a football player, hockey player, soccer player that says, 
no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. They don't want to show weakness in front of their teammates. They don't want to show weakness in front of their coach. And therefore, they continue to play the game. And it's not only that they don't want to show weakness, is that they also perceive that their teammates will judge them if they report a concussion injury, right? They are afraid of getting called soft or whatever it may be. So this, this whole idea of coaches and teammates putting that subtle pressure on athletes to to play right like oh i played injured i played with a broken foot i played with a concussion i played with this i played with that it's almost like this badge of honor this rite of passage and so that's it's the whole culture around the sport if you are a coach and your athletes don't feel that they can report this to you without you getting pissed at them they are going to hide it if you are an athlete and you feel that your teammates are going to judge you for reporting it then you're gonna hide it. And so it's a whole culture shift that has to happen around this in order for this to happen. So it's not just education, although that may over time start to shift culture. It's really the culture shift. I think the shift is on, I think people are waking up and it'll just take more time to happen. So that's on secondary tertiary prevention. This is concussion recognition. Next is baseline tests. This is a topic in and of itself, and I'm going to do a deep dive next week into baseline tests. What tests are the best, how to structure it, what to look for in baseline testing, um, all of this stuff, because it's a, it's a whole topic on its own. Now, what is a baseline test? There's some confusion around this. Now, a baseline test should be a series of tests. Most people think that a baseline test is just a computer test. Right? I go in, I do my you know, impact test on the computer, and that's it. I walk away. That's my baseline test. Well, that's not how it should be. Because what you need to do for a proper baseline test is you should be testing all elements that are potentially impacted by concussion injuries. Your balance, your reaction time, your visual tracking, your processing speed, your executive function, your memory, both auditory and visual memory, auditory and visual concentration. So you need to look at a whole bunch of different things. You can't just go and do one test and think that that's a good baseline. So a baseline test should be a series of tests that test multiple aspects of brain function and you test yourself or you get tested when you're healthy, when you don't have a concussion. You test yourself at the start of the sports season before things have kicked off. So now we know what your balance, reaction time, memory, concentration, visual function, reaction time, etc. looks like. Now it's used as a comparison. If you do get a concussion, we can use that information to compare. Now here's where most people go wrong. They think it's to help with the diagnosis. And in some cases it can be helpful with diagnosis, but most of the time diagnosis is a clinical diagnosis. It's made on symptoms and a mechanism of injury. All you need to diagnose a concussion is a mechanism of injury, meaning some sort of impact, accelerative force or deceleration to the head or brain or neck or body or elsewhere. And then the onset of symptoms or signs that would indicate concussion balance impairments, you know, fogginess, visual disturbances, all sorts of different stuff. Um, so that is all you need for a concussion. So having a baseline test doesn't really help you in that scenario. The only time it helps you is if the person is withholding symptoms. 
if you saw them get hit and then you're like, ooh, that was pretty bad, and they come off the sidelines and they're saying, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, and you're like, man, you don't seem quite fine, and they're saying, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, then the only time then going, well, we have some, let's go test you. Let's pull you off against your own will and let's test you on this stuff because then you can show some deficits. Now, what baseline testing is mostly used for is return to play clearance. Athlete gets a concussion. They have symptoms indicative of concussion injury. We've diagnosed concussion. They've gone through all the stages of return to sport. Now they're feeling better. Now we can retest them on all of this stuff to make sure that everything is um, back to normal, back to function. Make sure the reaction time is good, their memory is good, their visual tracking is good. Everything is back to functional levels. And the reason for this is that we know from the evidence that the physiologic concussion injury outlasts the symptom recovery from concussion. So people, when they get a concussion, will feel better before they are better, okay? So this is the same thing with like an infection, let's say. So somebody may be infectious before they even have symptoms, and then even after the symptoms go away, maybe they're still infectious, who knows, right? We have to have some way of being able to test them. Now, this is what happens with concussion. Concussion injury happens, symptoms occur, symptoms go away, brain dysfunction still lingers. And that tail is the most dangerous part because the person feels better, but their brain is actually vulnerable. So any additional trauma to the brain during that period of vulnerability can cause secondary injury, which can be additive and cumulative. And this is where a lot of the recurring injuries start to happen with concussions when people don't fully recover. And this is where the long-term neurodegenerative effects start to kind of take hold. So the whole thing here with baseline tests is not necessarily to make your diagnosis, but it's to provide better return to sport decisions. Athlete gets a concussion, their symptoms go away, they've gone through the return to sport process, they're going, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. All right, let's test you. We should do physical exertion testing to make sure that there's nothing lingering. A lot of times athletes feel better in a rested state. When we start putting them through the ringer, start challenging their vestibular system, their visual system, start getting them doing all sorts of dynamic drills, they start to experience symptoms again. Oh, I'm feeling dizzy, okay? So putting them through that as a first line of defense. Then secondly, let's check your balance, reaction time, memory, concentration, uh, ocular motor function, yada, 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 all of this stuff. And we're looking for deficits. You know what? Your reaction time is still slow. Your balance is still off. I know you feel good, but you're still off on these things. And we would never know that had we not known what you were like in a healthy state. So baseline tests can be very, very helpful for this. Some common tests you may have heard of is, you know, computerized neurocognitive testing, there's impact testing, there's ANM testing, there's cog sport testing. All of these neurocognitive tests, computerized neurocognitive tests are not supposed to be used as standalones, but yet they are. Most, you know, colleges and high schools in the United States and many places in Canada and throughout the world, they just come in to a computer lab, they do their quick little computer test and then they go home thinking that they have a baseline. That doesn't work very well. There's test retest reliability issues with those. They're only testing visual function. They're not looking at auditory. There's no balance measures in there. So it's missing a huge portion of things that can be affected with concussion. But also because of the test retest reliability issues of those particular measures, if you don't have anything else to verify those results, you're completely just reliant on something that is not 
um, very accurate. So it can be helpful to add computerized neurocognitive testing to your overall baseline. It's one component, but it should not be the whole thing. Another test people may be familiar with is something called the SCAT, which is the Sport Concussion Assessment Tool. The SCAT, S-C-A-T, uh, it's currently on the fifth iteration. This is a sideline test. So anyone doing baselines on you and they're just doing a SCAT, this is bullshit, for lack of a better word, because it's not gonna do anything to help you out when you're trying to make a return to sport decision. The reason is because the test is only valid for the first two or three days after the injury. The symptoms last longer than that. So somebody who gets a concussion is gonna have symptoms generally for seven to 10 days. That's kind of the norm. SCAT results normalize within three to four days after the injury, more closer to three. So somebody who's just doing a SCAT on you is wasting your time as a baseline because it's not gonna really be helpful. Now we use the SCAT as part of our baseline because we have therapists that work on the sideline with athletes and that information can be helpful in that exact moment. But in terms of using that information clinically to help us make better return to sport decisions, it's useless. So if you wanna include it as part of what you're doing, that's okay. But if you're just doing a SCAT and thinking that you're doing good baselines, you're not. If you're just doing a neurocognitive test, an impact test, and thinking you're doing a good baseline, you're not. It's just not doing anything for you, and it's probably actually putting you in more liability. So the whole idea with baseline tests is to have something that is comprehensive. So having a baseline is important, it's very, very helpful, but it has to be done in the right way. It has to be done by people who know what they're doing, how to interpret it, what tests to use, and develop a battery of things to measure all different areas of brain function to put it in a full clinical picture. Now, if you're looking for a good baseline test, I mean, I'm biased because I started the company, but completeconcussions.com slash find a clinic, you'll find hundreds and hundreds of clinics around the world that do a comprehensive baseline test based on the evidence. Um, next up, club readiness so this is just talking about policy development so your concussion policy from a from a club from a school um you know sports organization should incorporate legislation so every state in the u.s has concussion-based legislation um in ontario in canada only ontario has concussion-based legislation so you should be familiar with what your duties are from a legal standpoint but it should also go above and beyond that most of the legislation is like the bare minimum right but there's much more to this than that so you should be providing the best you know guidelines to help keep your athletes safe so going a little bit above and beyond and finding someone who can help you with this somebody who has concussion expertise is extremely important for getting the right policies in place so things that you should look at including or should be included in your concussion policies reporting criteria who reports the injuries is it from a coach is it from a trainer is it from the parents themselves do they have to self-report um, what is the training protocol for the staff for your referees for your coaches for your trainers uh, what, what type of concussion knowledge are they going to have how are you laying out your, your concussion recovery stages what type of process do your athletes have to go through is it just they need a doctor's letter can they come back in one day do they need to have a certain amount of time off you know, all of these things should be included 
in your policy. When can non-contact sport be resumed? When can contact sport be resumed? When can full return to sport be resumed? You know, the big thing I find with concussion policies is that many of them are basic in the sense that they just say you just require a physician sign off. What that does is A, most physicians don't have training when it comes to concussion and this usually blows people's mind is that concussion is not even covered in most medical schools. So most doctors out there have never really give, been given a good strong uh, education on concussion. So just saying that it just need any doctor signature is not really the most effective strategy when it comes to a concussion policy. What you should be looking for is a concussion trained healthcare professional because oftentimes it's not even the physician that's managing most of the cases most of the time it's the physios it's the chiropractors it's the athletic trainers or therapists that are managing these concussion injuries they're the ones that have more expertise in this in a lot of cases so it shouldn't necessarily just be based on professional designation it should be based on training and concussion is this person an experienced clinician when it comes to concussion right that's who you should be looking for in your policies to be making these decisions and then how are they making these decisions are they making these decisions purely on a self-report from somebody saying that they feel better or do they have any type of objective testing included right so things that you could include in your policy where there should be at least physical exertion testing included in return to sport there should be retesting of of neurocognitive and balance measures and other you know um, um, baseline retest if they have a valid baseline so it's not the concussion that you should be afraid of. It's the improper management of those concussions. It's the too soon return to play. It's the improper medical clearance where the athlete comes back because their neighbor's a doctor and they just got a sign-off letter. That's the stuff where that liability is going to come back to bite you. Because if that athlete gets another concussion and your policy wasn't up to snuff, that's where things are going to happen. We see this right now all around the world sports organizations schools you know semi-professional sports youth sports all getting sued for negligence and improper management right and it doesn't need to occur that way we have things we have tools in place i mean if you need help with developing a concussion policy go to completeconcussions.com there's a whole bunch of stuff there we have standard policies we can help we help build them that's kind of what we do and so if you are struggling hit us up there's help out there to make the best policies for concussion and lastly i'm going to touch on concussion reporting because this is a big thing concussion reporting can be an absolute pain in the ass but it's super important because unless you know where these injuries are happening how long they're taking to recover uh, how frequently they're happening what age groups are happening in you can't really make any good decisions off of that you need to know that information to start making changes to see how it affects the data, right? And so doing this all by hand is currently how most the people are doing it. Now, of course, we have an app for that and it's free. You can download it from the Google Play, you can download it from the App Store. So go to Google, Google blah, 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 go to Google Play, go to the App Store, download Concussion Tracker, okay? It's completely free. 
And what it allows you to do is if you're a coach, you can input all of your players. If you're a player, you can do your own baseline testing on there. We have neurocognitive testing on there, so you can at least do that portion of it on there. You should obviously do more, as I mentioned. But we have free neurocognitive testing on the app. Uh, on athletes, if you get injured, there's a whole bunch of other resources for you, like diet plans, finding you know local clinics. You can submit your symptoms on an ongoing basis. We have all sorts of stuff to help you with your recovery when concussions happen. If you're a coach and an injury happens, if you're a parent and an injury happens or you think that one of your players has a concussion, it walks you through things to look for. It brings up red flags. If these things are going on, this person goes to the hospital and it tells you that. This, these are the things that are concerning. Is the person vomiting, yada, yada, yada. That's hospital trip. If all of those are negative and you're all, you, say, you answer no to all of those, then it moves on to the next phase. And it walks you through a full sideline assessment, including a neurocognitive test where you give the athlete the phone. And we have reaction time testing right on the phone, and it compares to their baseline. So right there, you're getting real-time comparison with an athlete's pre-injury healthy score, and it's all done with this completely free application. That injury report gets saved you can send it to the league office. You can save it on your phone. You, the athlete gets a copy of it. And then it also notifies every other coach that that athlete is associated with. So if that athlete plays multiple sports, hockey, soccer, football, lacrosse, whatever, that athlete gets concussed playing hockey, the football coach, the rugby coach, the soccer coach, the lacrosse coach, they all get notified. Johnny's got a concussion. Oh, okay, wow. And they weren't even there. But now they know. So Johnny can't just say, well, my, my, my soccer coach doesn't know, so I'm going to go play soccer. No, the soccer coach knows. The teachers know. Everyone knows now. So it's the whole communication line, circle of care, everybody's aware. The person's clinic gets notified. So if Johnny's going to a CCMI clinic, the clinic gets notified. So now we can fast track Johnny in for care. We know that faster care equals better outcomes, faster recovery. So now we can fast track Johnny in for care. So this whole communication line, and then when the injury is done, you can upload the medical clearance letter, and now it's full circle. You have the whole injury wrapped up. From a liability perspective, you have everything that was done with that particular athlete. You have the entire thing from point of injury to full completion. So it's a free app. Go download it. It'll help you with reporting. It'll help you with reducing your liability. It'll help you with reducing the claims of negligence and everything else. Um, and like I said, it's completely free to use. You don't even need to have one of our clinics to be able to use it. It's completely uh, free and can be done irrespective of that. Okay, so let's summarize. Getting concussion ready. Concussion prevention, the only way to prevent concussion seems to be limiting contact. Protective equipment doesn't necessarily matter. It can help you with more serious injuries and other injuries, but it's not gonna help you reduce the likelihood of concussion. The best thing you can do is ensure proper concussion recognition, proper uh, return to activity protocols, and proper concussion reporting and data collection. So in other words, proper management of the injury is the most effective way that a sports organization, a parent, an athlete, anyone can actually reduce the impact of concussions, reduce the long-term neurodegenerative effects, reduce the chance of having subsequent injuries and more serious complications. All of this comes down to management. Good baselines, trained clinicians, solid communication, strong policies. 
and that's it. Complete Concussion Management is here to help. Go to completeconcussions.com if you need any assistance with this. That is it for me. There's some questions over here on the live that I will answer once I'm done with this uh, video. Thanks, you guys, for watching. If you're watching on YouTube or listening on uh, Apple Podcasts, be sure to like, leave a comment, leave a review. Uh, we always appreciate it. Um, and next week, we're going to be talking about baseline tests. I'm going to break it down. So a couple questions over here, and that'll be it. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.